0: Hello, I'm Lloyd Grossman and I've been going to John Sandoz for a very long time. I, I think I first discovered the shop in the mid-70s when it was, um, I think, about less than half the size. And although it's expanded greatly, it feels very much the same as it, as it always does with its, its wonderful atmosphere. Um, local bookshops independent bookshops are immensely important. And aside from that particular importance, John Sandow has a great role, I think, in the history of Chelsea. And it's a reminder, along with places like the Chelsea Arts Club or the London Sketch Club, it's a reminder that in spite of the swinging 60s and its role in fashion, and its now very high real estate values, it's a reminder that Chelsea was a very bohemian, very intellectual, very um, very unusual part of London, sort of really the the greenwich the Greenwich village of London. And I think john Sandow helps to um helps to preserve that. it's to me it's it's very precious, so it's a great honor to be involved in this podcast. I'm going to be talking about my new book, which is called An Elephant in Rome, Um, subtitle, um, Bernini the Pope and the Making of the Eternal City. I love Rome. I didn't always love Rome. My first visit was an absolute disaster. I was uh, interrailing around Europe with my brother and Our encounter with Rome was so sort of noisy and confusing and uncomfortable, we left after about about, uh, four or five hours. But on that that very first encounter, when I was um, fleeing the rather seedy pensione that we thought we were going to be staying at, I went, of course, to look at the Pantheon, which, many people think is one of the, and I would agree, is one of the greatest buildings in the world, certainly the greatest surviving building from ancient Rome. And after looking at the Pantheon, I was on my way to look around the corner at the this tailors, the papal tailors are around the corner, and I've been told that they sold the best socks. So I was on my way to buy some socks. When I walked through the Piazza della Minerva and found this incredible, weird, beautiful, funny, um, statue of an elephant, an elephant on a plinth, on a tall plinth, and an elephant which was also carrying an ancient Egyptian obelisk on its back. So, I mean, this was quite an extraordinary object to see. I was immediately, intrigued I discovered that it had been designed and built under the supervision of Gian Lorenzo Bernini and this started me on a very long long trail which um, culminated in this in this current book bernini is not exactly a household name in the anglophone world and so it's worth reminding ourselves that in the seventeenth century, which, after all, is the century of Rembrandt, of Rubens, of Velázquez, Vermeer, in that period, Bernini was unquestionably the most famous artist in all of Europe. He started life humbly, I suppose. His his father was um really basically a, a, a sort of craftsman descended from the peasantry of, of of Tuscany. He was a very skilled carver, although not very inventive or imaginative, but he was a very skilled workman, and because of that, Pop Bernini was um, called to Naples. Naples at the time, you know, in the late 16th century, Naples was, the most populous city in Europe, very rich. There was lots of church building going on there. So Pop Bernini went there, and that's where Gian Lorenzo Bernini was born in 1598. But uh, within a few years, Rome beckoned, because Rome is the seat of the papacy and probably the greatest center of artistic patronage in Europe desperately needed talented artisans, and uh, Pietro Bernini was one of them. Um, He was soon eclipsed by his son. Uh, Gian Lorenzo was a Mozart. He was a child prodigy, and certainly by the time he was in his early teens He had been brought to the attention of the most important and powerful people in Rome, both the Pope and members of the papal court. He benefited hugely from the patronage of um, Scipione Borghese, who was the opulent, um, high-spending, artistically inclined nephew of the Pope. And Bernini's very long career and very long life he lived into his eighties in the seventeenth century, which was unusual um, brought him into contact with a whole succession of popes and rather remarkably there were very few bumps in the road you know usually unlike a hereditary monarchy, when the Pope died, there was a tremendous jockeying um of candidates to become the next pope. And every new pope brought with him a whole bunch of people who needed to be enriched and supported. And uh, first, of course, members of the papal family, you know, cousins, aunts, brothers, nephews, they all had to get, they all had to make great marriages or get important church positions or, or also sinecures. And then every Pope also brought a huge entourage of artists and courtiers, usually coming from their their hometown. Um, So there was a tremendous turnover and a tremendous rise and fall of of people and reputations. And somehow Bernini managed to navigate through the reigns of successive Popes and always always ended up on top getting the huge commissions. There are a couple of reasons for this. First, he was supremely talented as a sculptor, as an architect, as a designer of pageants, as an interior decorator in a way, as as a master of, of papal propaganda. This was, of course, the period of a robust rebirth of Catholicism, but it was also a period in which the political power of the papacy was failing. The Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 1648, was absolutely disastrous for the papacy because for the first time, really in a major way, the Pope was unable to play a meaningful diplomatic role. And the Peace of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War, is really generally regarded as a pretty low point in terms of the political influence of the papacy. You need to remember that the Pope, um, the pope was not only a spiritual magnate, but he was also a secular ruler. The papal states occupied a very important strategic role in central Italy, and Italy, of course, was as... Metternich famously said much later, merely a geographical expression. It was essentially, in the age of Bernini, it was kind of a toss salad of different principalities and duchies and kingdoms. And all the great powers of Europe were constantly jockeying for power in, uh, in Italy. You know, the, the, the Spanish were the most important in many ways, but the rising power of France really destabilized the whole of the, the, whole of the Italian peninsula. Um, an amazing man called Fabio Chigi became Pope in 1655. He had been the papal diplomat who actually failed to come up with a meaningful conclusion for the Treaty of Westphalia, and out of the ashes, of that failure, he seems to have come up with the idea that if the papacy could no longer command real political cloud, it could certainly be at the top of what today we would describe as soft power, namely the use of, of culture to enhance uh, prestige and importance. And um, Kiji, who became Pope Alexander VII, was absolutely determined to make Rome the cultural capital of Europe and to beautify it uh, in such a way that everyone felt that they would have to have to come to Rome. This had political implications. It also had great commercial implications because, of course, Rome was one of the first great mass tourist destinations, thanks not only to the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who arrived during holy years, but through the round-the-year attraction of Rome, uh, which resulted from the great papal commissions of marvelous fountains and churches and statues and monuments and um, obelisks. This whole thing had really been started in the previous century by Sixtus V, but it was Alexander the Seventh who absolutely put his foot on the gas pedal and said in a way that Boris Johnson did recently, who more or less said, we must build, build, build. And the person Alexander the Seventh turned to, to build, build, build was Bernini, who got an absolute sort of flood of papal commissions. Maybe the most famous Uh, of of all to visitors to Rome and a a universal symbol of Rome's importance and of the church's importance is the great square, the great piazza in front of um, St. Peter's with its huge curved colonnades which Bernini said explicitly were meant to represent the embracing arms of the church Um, Whether you are a churchgoer or not, it is impossible to stand in the center of St. Peter's Square without feeling this tremendous sense of uplift and excitement and spirituality. It's a remarkable urban space, one of the greatest urban spaces in the world. When I was um, researching Bernini, um, I had to keep reminding myself that the history of art is often written as if making art is just an aesthetic, uh, an expression, expressionist in, endeavor. But artists are also concerned with what we might call the kitchen sink issues. I remember someone asking Picasso what he and Matisse talked about during their often long meetings. And Picasso said, oh, we talked about the price of paint. It's important to remember that, you know, artists have got to earn a living. They've got to support their families. Bernini became very, very rich. Bernini was particularly interested in creating a huge legacy for his family. So, you know, artists are interested in, in money quite often. Um, artists often have very big egos. Bernini had a colossal ego. Uh, which he kept in check. He also knew how to get commissions. He was a very skillful courtier. He said the right things to the right people. He was very attractive. That's another dirty secret of art history, is it helps to be good-looking. Bernini was good-looking. Um, and he was also a very, very good project manager. And this this came to the fore when he got his early commission, to build the great, the Baldacchino, that huge 30-meter-high bronze canopy over the high altar at St. Peter's, which is not just an artistic triumph, but is also a triumph of engineering, a triumph of logistics, um, a triumph of getting things done. So Bernini was was great at, at getting things done, And that's one of the reasons why the popes consistently turned to him and why Alexander VII, with his mania for building, I mean, Alexander VII kept a scale model of Rome um, in his private apartments and was always figuring out different ways to lay out a new square or change a building or change a road. Um, Bernini and he made the greatest um, artistic double act in, in, in history. Um, the Baroque, which Bernini has been described as the master of the Baroque, and I, th- I think he is. The Baroque is, is, is a very interesting art form, um, very hard to define. It's easier to recognize than it is to define. So I'm just going to read a, a, a little passage from my book about the Baroque. More than any other style before or since, the Baroque was singularly focused on heightening the drama of life. Sforza Pallavicino, one of Pope Alexander VII's house intellectuals, argued that God, quote, gilded heaven with light to enamor mortals with it. So it is fitting the churches were illuminated with gold so that the people fall in love with them and run towards them. He then went on to say, quote, that, The people want theatres, and it was imperative to make the theatres curing sin more sumptuous and pleasant than those where sin goes to feed. End of quote. What better description could there be of art in the service of the church? And Pallavicino's use of the word theatres is important, because when we enter the world of Baroque Rome, we find that the whole city has been turned into a vast theatre, a backdrop for not only great religious processions and state rituals, but for everyday life as well. Bernini himself perhaps best summed up the persuasive and theatrical aspirations of the Baroque in his description of the Piazza of St. Peter's, "...since the Church of St. Peter's is the mother of nearly all the others, it had to have colonnades which would show it as if stretching out its arms maternally to receive Catholics." so as to confirm them in their faith, heretics to reunite them to the church, and infidels to enlighten them in the true faith, end of quote. Um, No wonder the Baroque was never really a favoured style amongst the British. That was Lloyd Grossman talking about his new book, An Elephant in Rome. If you'd like your own copy, just search An Elephant in Rome on the John Sandoe website and we'll be in touch with you as soon as your order reaches us. We've reopened now, but it'll be a while before we get our events evenings back up and running. Until then, we'll be bringing out a variety of podcasts to keep you entertained and in the know about the most exciting new books. Stay tuned for more.